This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Thirty years ago yesterday, the space shuttle Challenger lifted off from Cape Canaveral, Florida, cleared the tower, and exploded in midair. Challenger, go and throttle up. Challenger, go and throttle up. This shuttle mission will launch, my God, One minute 15 there's been an explosion. Velocity 2,900 feet per second, altitude 9 nautical miles, downrange distance 7 nautical miles. This is not standard. This is not something that is planned, of course. I can see a solid rocket booster has broken away from Shuttle Challenger. That's what you're looking at in the middle of your screen. I cannot see the shuttle itself. Many people remember where they were that day. Dave Klaus was working as a shuttle launch commander for NASA. He's now a professor of aerospace engineering at the University of Colorado. Dave, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you, Nathan. 30 years ago, you were a shuttle launch commander, and while you were assigned to the Challenger launch, you weren't at Cape Canaveral that day. Uh, Why not? That's right. I I had uh, just started working about a year prior to that, right out of college in 85. And part of the reason that I was hired was to be on the launch control team that was going to support missions to fly out of the West Coast and at uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. And so you were watching from Vandenberg Air Force Base on TV like the rest of the country and saw the shuttle lift off. How soon did you realize there was a problem? You know, it was pretty obvious when you saw the big plume on the screen, as so many people saw that day, that something was going wrong. There was there was a lot of hope held out initially that perhaps the, the uh, vehicle might have separated enough to fly back, but that was pretty quickly obviously not the case. Uh, and then, of course, everyone realizes the shock that followed from that. So how quickly did it ripple through the rest of the, the, the people watching at Vandenberg? Oh, I would say within minutes, people, you know, everyone knew what was going on. And it, it was quite somber, as you can imagine. It was... Uh, very much a shock. Uh, that's that's the thing you remember the most, I suppose. And so you, do, you, do you instantly go into kind of work mode or do you take a second to go, my goodness, what just happened? Well, of course, you know, going back to work that day was a little tough and uh, it's very, uh, very much prominent in your mind. Uh, people often ask what happens after that. And then you do go back into work mode at some point. And it's always the question of did the agency change as a consequence? And I was thinking about that this morning a little bit. Hmm. And if, I would say, uh, as an analogy, you might consider uh, being on a sports team, having an undefeated season, and then suddenly a big upset loss. You know, there's this awareness uh, of what can go wrong at that point that begins to sink in. And while you don't dwell on the loss, you do start to think about how to make sure things like that don't happen again. And all seven crew members were killed in the explosion. Had you met the astronauts of Challenger? I had not. At at that point, as a launch control engineer, uh, the astronauts are stationed in Houston. Uh, I spent most of the year of 1985 at the Cape, at Kennedy Space Center, but the crew isn't there very often. They come in and out for quick testing. I did not have a chance to meet the uh, Challenger crew. And and after the disaster, the shuttles were grounded for 32 months, and President Ronald Reagan appointed a commission to investigate, and that commission determined the explosion was caused by O-ring seals that failed. But it also said NASA ignored problems because there was pressure to launch, what they called uh, go fever. Did did you experience that? Well, in my in my own way, I suppose I did. In uh, in 1985, uh, that was actually there were more launches in 85 than there were in any other year in the history of the program. Uh, there were a total of nine launches uh, that year. Had yeah, to kind of come and, routine you know, at the time. You know, people say that. I, I saw most of those, and I can tell you there's nothing routine about watching this controlled explosion lift people into the sky. It's, mm. uh, each and every one was very impressive. So, yeah, there were a lot of, you know, 50, 60-hour, six-day work weeks uh, was pretty much routine. But, again, I was 
fresh out, and I was like a kid in a candy store there. I would have done that if even if they weren't paying me. It was it was such a great experience. And, and so was there that go fever from time to time? Um, you know, I didn't feel that personally, but uh, from what I've read and heard in the past, yeah, there was some pressure to, to launch, I suppose. But for me, again, it was just very exciting, and uh, I was happy to be part of the team. From your perspective, Dave, how did the Challenger disaster change the space program? Well, I think the probably the single biggest thing is again that awareness of the of the things that can go wrong, and and it, it heightened the awareness of risk and safety. Certainly, that was that was important before then, and and remained important. But I think the awareness went up uh, that you know things can go wrong, and they go wrong in a hurry, and and of course very uh, dire consequences. How did it change you? I mean, you were there with NASA when that happened. What was your feelings weeks, months, and, and now, you know, 30 years on? Well, it, it definitely had a very pragmatic effect on my life in particular, and uh, probably something that most people don't realize. As I, I mentioned, uh, the plans were to start launching Air Force satellites out of Vandenberg off the West Coast later that year. In September of 86 was the first planned launch the launch pad was pretty much ready to go. That was what I was out there working on at the time of the accident. And uh, shortly after the Challenger accident, probably with some other factors as well, the West Coast launch facility was decommissioned for shuttle and shut down, and that never occurred. So had that not happened, I probably would have spent a lot of time out in California. Uh, it was a beautiful area of the central coast there. So for me personally, it gave me a career transition shortly, a little over a year into my, my first job getting laid off. I uh, ended up moving to Houston later that year and started working uh, at NASA at the Johnson Space Center. So completely changed my personal trajectory in that sense. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're remembering the day 30 years ago when the space shuttle Challenger exploded. Dave Klaus was a launch commander for NASA and watched the scene from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. He's now a professor of aerospace engineering at CU Boulder. Dave, is spaceflight any safer now than, than 30 years ago? Oh, that's a good question. We're actually doing some research along those lines. And if you um, if you look at risk, well, first of all, I would say the answer is, is yes, flat out. But they're still very risky. And put it in context a little bit, on a fatality per person, per trip kind of thing, over a one-year average, um, space flight's roughly on par with climbing Mount Everest in terms of potential loss of life. Huh. After this disaster... You applied to become an astronaut yourself, though, twice, and got into the final rounds but weren't accepted. Did that fear ever come up in your mind that this is something very, very dangerous, but was that allure there to to become an astronaut so strong you continued with it? Yeah, you realize the danger, and that's one of the first things that you're told on day one of the interview. The the risks there of spaceflight are greater than loss of life in combat sortie missions for aircraft. And, you know, you're, you're told several times, feel free if, if you're not comfortable with that to get up and leave. Uh, I don't think anyone ever does. The, uh, what I perceived, at least, as the importance of doing that far outweighed the risk, and it was a risk I was willing to take. And today you have students who want to be astronauts. What advice do you give them? You know, it's uh, the same advice I was given is, is it's, a, it's a fantastic dream and, and pursue it with your whole heart. But uh, make sure you're doing a career that you enjoy regardless of if you get to become an astronaut. And I think that the more you enjoy what you're doing, the better you do, and therefore the greater the chances are of getting selected. One of the astronauts who died in the explosion was Ellison Onizuka, who graduated from CU Boulder. Do your students know about, about him and Challenger, or, or is it ancient history to them? 
You know, I guess I'm ancient history to them in that regard. And uh, yes, every class I teach, I, I always bring up a little bit of historical information up front and, you know, give them some context for what's happened in the past. Uh, and, and Onizuka is remembered daily in our department because we have a conference room named after him. So mm. there's photos of him hanging on the wall in there. And I think it's very prominent uh, and, and nice rec- uh, remembrance. And we're also coming up on another anniversary, February 1st marks 13 years since the Columbia Space Shuttle broke apart upon re-entry, killing everyone on board, including another CU Boulder alum, Kolpana Chavla. You were working at CU at that time and helped build an experiment that was aboard that flight. In what way was that tragedy similar to Challenger and different for you? Well, that one was much more close to home in many ways. You know, as I, as I started out as a launch controller, I have to admit my, my mindset was of I was watching the, the vehicle. I was watching the shuttle launch. In later years, after working in Houston for uh, about four years at, in Mission Ops, uh, I got to know a lot of the crew. I was in the same building as they were, and so became a much more personal, um, you know, much more closer to home. And on the Columbia, we did have a, an experiment flying, and I'd been working that mission. The, most of the crew was up here um, visiting for training about a year prior to the launch. And so I got to know several of them quite well. Uh, very nice, very nice group collectively. And uh, we were all having dinner one evening down at the Walnut Brewery down on, uh, uh, in downtown Boulder, uh, one of the last evenings they were here. And uh, every time I go in there, uh, I look back and I, I see that whole group sitting around the table. So uh, mm-hmm. that one was was definitely hit me a little harder, I think. So watching Challenger, uh, you know, as a, as a machine and then watching, you know, uh, this shuttle launch, it definitely was different for you. Yeah, it it transitioned from watching the, the shuttle to watching the people go up, I guess. And that happened you know, years prior when I did start to know some of the crew in Houston. The space shuttle program was retired in 2011. How do you feel about the space shuttles now that they're gone? Oh, I was just in Washington a couple months ago and went to visit Discovery there. And uh, like so many people describe it, I think bittersweet is is the best definition. You know, it was good run. I was glad to be a part of it uh, for the bulk of the, the time it was flying and really miss seeing the shuttle. Uh, I miss seeing it. And yet it's time to, to move on into the future. And, uh, you know, why do you, why do you think Challenger is one of those touchstone experiences? You know, the kind of where people remember where they were. Is it different for people in the space industry as opposed to just the general public? Oh, I think everyone experienced that shock, that immediate shock. And it's, you know, probably not so different than watching a, a fatal car accident or a train wreck or something. You know, it's going to be in, it just indelibly marked in your mind. Uh, I suppose with Challenger, it was because it was essentially a national or international worldwide experience that so many people saw that that makes it a little more prominent memory for so many. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dave Klaus is a professor of aerospace engineering at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Yesterday marked the 30th anniversary of the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. CU Boulder will host a memorial service for those killed in the Challenger and Columbia shuttle accidents tomorrow. Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. 
you've probably seen the white outline of a bicycle painted on the road with two arrows. That symbol is called a shero. It means that drivers and bicyclists are supposed to share the lane. They were invented in Denver two two decades ago and now found around the world. But do they keep bicyclists safe? Here with his best answer is CU Denver doctoral candidate of civil engineering, Nick Ferencheck. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for having me. So you partnered with associate civil engineering professor Wesley Marshall to take a closer look at these sharrows. Why? Um, I was really motivated based on my own personal commute every morning. Uh, So I live up in Northeast Park Hill in Denver, and I commute to downtown. uh, And I take MLK about seven miles, uh, and it's a really comfortable ride. I have a bike lane the entire way, except for about a one-mile stretch where the bike lane disappears and sharrows appear. And that's always been the diciest part of my commute, and I always wondered whether those sharrows were actually making me any safer. So essentially going down from an independent lane, and you have to kind of merge with traffic into kind of this uh, joint area. Yes. Yeah. The bike lane actually dedicates space for bicyclists. Uh, it actually has a strip on the side of the road. Bicyclists have their own safe space. Uh, whereas in a Sharrow, it's just a normal motor vehicle lane um, and there's no dedicated space for the bicyclist. I'm thinking a, a bit of Boulder uh, when you're talking about these two types of lanes. And I'm thinking where the city created a wide bike lane with a barrier that prevented cars from swerving into this bicycle zone. Uh, then the city went back on that and remove that zone, uh, could sharrows where bikes and cars share the lane be an easier way for cities to go? Um, they definitely are an easier and cheaper way, and mm-hmm. I think that's why they're getting so popular nowadays. Uh, but the question remains whether they're actually making bicyclists safer. There's really a number of ways that you can use the sharrows and a number of purposes that cities install them for. Um, so if you put a sharrow on a road that's already safe for bicyclists. Maybe it's great for wayfinding or something like that. Uh, but if you put a shower on a road like MLK, which is not really designed to be safe for bicyclists, then uh, maybe it's just giving them a false sense of security and it's not making that road any safer. So what is the, I guess, uh, how a pedestrian, I'm sorry, how a bicyclist should view a sharrow as opposed to a driver viewing a sharrow? I mean, I've, I've driven down roads that have those on, on, on the road itself. Yeah. Um, so there's a number of different reasons that cities install these, like I said, uh, they can be to avoid wrong way riding, which I think is why Denver created them in the first place to avoid sidewalk riding, um, to get bicyclists away from parked cars so they don't get hit by a a door called a door and crash. Uh, so there's a number of reasons why, uh, they're installed to kind of control bicyclist behavior, uh, for a driver. It's just generally supposed to make the driver aware that, Hey, there could be bicyclists in this area. So wrong way riding, that's bicyclists riding on the wrong side of the street or wrong direction on the street? Uh, wrong direction, yeah, going against traffic. And those were the sharrows were created in Denver. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, they were originally created in Denver, early 90s. Uh, I believe there were two original reasons for them being created. Um, first was to avoid wrong way riding, like I said. And then the second was uh, just to make motorists aware that, hey, there's bicyclists in this area. And you can see them, of course, in Europe and many U.S. cities now. Uh, how do they gain such wide acceptance? Um, I think there's really two reasons behind that. Uh, the first is, well, recently they were accepted in federal guidelines. Um, so the Federal Highway Administration is now saying, hey, these are safe to put on our roads. So that's kind of giving everyone the green light. 
Um, and secondly, they're just really easy and cheap to install. Whereas a bike lane, you need to actually dedicate space from the right of way. You need to maintain it, things like that. A uh, shadow, you don't need to change the design of the roadway at all. Just put down this little marking. And I did look at the federal government's website, and it does say, like you said, sharrows are meant to keep bicyclists safe, uh, for instance, encourage drivers to be safer on bicyclists, etc. But your research seems to contradict that. Tell me about your findings. Okay. So uh, we looked at the city of Chicago, uh, and we looked at block groups, which are a geographical area that the census uses, um, a little bit smaller than a neighborhood. Okay. Um, And we grouped those into three different um, sections. So block groups in Chicago that had no bike infrastructure, no treatments installed, uh, block groups that had sharrows installed, and block groups that had bike lanes installed. And then we wanted to see which of those was getting safer, which was getting less safe, so on and so forth. And what did you find? Uh, So we found that – well, first we looked at ridership. We found that um, areas that had – Bike lanes installed had really great increases in ridership, whereas areas that had shadows or nothing installed had smaller increases in ridership. Okay. Uh, then we created an injury rate, so so many injuries per 1,000 bicyclists. Uh, and we found that um, the crashes and bicyclist injuries near bike lanes were really decreasing, um, whereas around shadows and areas that had nothing installed, they weren't getting as safe. So, oh, and we actually found that uh, areas around shadows were getting a little bit less safe than areas that had nothing installed. Really? So putting those those uh, signs on the road, in a sense, weren't making much of a difference at all? Yeah. Um, and we think they could actually be uh, giving riders a false sense of security. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, we presented this work in D.C., and I talked to someone from the Netherlands. They said that, hey, we use something like this. Uh, we put them on roads that are really friendly for bicyclists, um, and it's kind of a way to invite automobiles to use those roads. So it's a different prioritization. Uh, whereas, for example, on my commute on MLK, that's not a safe road for bicyclists at all. Yet we put this shadow down and we expect, oh, it's safe all of a sudden. So uh, it's kind of a false sense of security for the bicyclists. So Nick, do you think what you discovered in Chicago could apply in Denver and other cities here in Colorado? Yeah, I, I definitely think it, it applies. Um, like I said, Denver originated the shadows. They use them a lot. Um, and um, I, I have here the Denver Moves plan, oh, sure. the yeah. audit. Uh, so the Denver Moves plan is just kind of a plan how to make Denver really great for people to walk and bike around, do it healthy, safely. safely. Um, and the audit found that 56% of low ease of use facilities, so things like Sharrows, easy, cheap to install, 56% of those that were planned have been installed. So we're doing a really great job of installing those. But high ease of use, things like protected bike lanes, which are more expensive, more difficult, but probably safer, we've only installed 2% of those um, from the plan. So we're doing a great job of installing cheap, easy things like shadows, but we're not doing a great job of installing protected bike lanes. And So if we're not seeing any change in the safety for these bicyclists, should cities just abandon shadows altogether and just leave these roads unmarked? I don't think that's what we want to that, – that, I don't think that's the message that we want to convey. Okay. Um, may be really great in some instances. Like I said, there's a dozen different reasons that cities install these. Um, for our Netherlands example, yeah. um, if you put these on 
a road that's already safe for bicyclists. These may be great at wayfinding or, or something like that. Uh, but putting them on a road like MLK, where people are regularly driving 45 miles an hour, maybe that's not the best idea. So there might be good uses, but maybe the way that we're using them right now is not the best. So it's kind of a middle middle of the road thing. You don't have to have a lot of uh, money invested into it, but it does maybe create some sort of visibility that bicyclists will be on the road. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm just curious. I, I know you commute on a bike. You've said that. W- would you say that biased your research in any way? Because you're using these Sharos every day. Um, yeah, I, I was definitely... Uh, on the on the from the outset, I, yeah. I was definitely wondering, and that's why I asked the question in the first place. I just from anecdotal evidence, I I don't feel like that those make me any safer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't think it biased the uh, research at all. We used uh, crash data from the Illinois Department of Transportation and data from the census uh, for ridership numbers, so it was a pretty objective study. So I guess bottom line, you know, what what is better for bicyclists in a city like Denver that is growing in terms of keeping them safe? Yeah, and this is our main takeaway from the research, um, and and they came to the same conclusions in the Denver Moves audit um, that we need appropriate infrastructure. We can't just have these kind of cheap and easy sharrows that we can throw down for a few dollars, and then a city can say, "Hey, look at us! We have 400 miles of bike infrastructure." Uh, we need to make the big investments uh, for infrastructure that has been proven to make bicyclists safer. If you install these on a road like MLK, it will make that road safer. Um, So I think we need to make the big um, investments in in the right investments, I guess I'll say. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Nick Ferencheck is a doctoral candidate of civil engineering. He and a CU Denver associate professor plan to submit their findings to the journal Accident Analysis and Prevention for publication. Just ahead, a new art exhibit is showcasing the best works Colorado has to offer, including a giant inflatable rhinoceros battling sea anemones. Yeah, that is true. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. You'll see a self-portrait made from Rice Krispies and a painting of a sea lion covered in graffiti. These are just two pieces of art now being shown at Art of the State. It's a massive exhibition of more than 120 Colorado artists at the Arvada Center for the Arts and Humanities. CPR's arts reporter Corey Jones visited one of the artists featured at the show, Denver printmaker Mark Lunning. He takes us inside his studio, where you can find piles of paper, metal etching plates, and ink cans. It's where Lunning creates what he calls visual poems. This is just some black ink, and you just uh, get some ink out like that, mix it up on the palette. Hi, my name is Mark Lunning, I'm a Denver artist, and we're standing in Open Press, a fine art printmaking facility and gallery. Traditional printmaking is not reproduction. It's not a copy of something. A lot of times people look at a fine art print and ask what the original looks like, expecting to see a painting or something. And that's not what we do. So this is a, a zinc plate. This is, a, you can uh, feel the, the texture on the plate there. And then I'm going to take some ink and rub the ink into the, the texture of the plate. It's all handmade. All the images are either etched with acid or scratched or hand-carved into the plates. You know, there's no uh, machines. I mean, there's a press 
that has a lot of pressure that you run it through, but it's not like a computer that you know prints things out. And I'm going to crank it through. The piece I have in the Art of the State show at the Arvada Center is a large etching called Activities of Entropy. It's an abstracted image of a cityscape with vines flowing in and out of it and circles and ovals and stripes floating to uh, create kind of a lyrical uh, movement throughout the piece. Entropy is how... uh, Everything comes from the earth, and, you know, it gets made into things and so forth, and then eventually it deteriorates and goes back to the earth. But there's uh, parts of those processes that we don't actually know how it happens, but there's like a magical moment, and I'm presenting what uh, a visual interpretation of what that could look like. Once it comes out the other side, as you can see, the paper conforms to the texture and shape of the plate and pulls the ink out, and then when I pull the print up, and you can see it. And this is just uh, three rolling hills with the highway in front of you and the, the cityscape in the background. And it's like at uh, dusk, so the sun's going down, and it's kind of a high-contrast piece. Mark Lunning owns Open Press, a printmaking shop and gallery in Denver. He's one of more than 120 Colorado artists featured in a new exhibition at the Arvada Center. And you can see a photo of the print he made at cprnews.org. And for more now on Art of the State, we turn to Colin Parson. He was one of the jurors for the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So this is a big collection in a massive space. Uh, Art of the State has nearly 150 works, and there are traditional pieces and some unexpected ones as well. What will people see at the show? Take us into the show. Okay, well, uh, you walk into the building, and immediately there's a sculpture by Yoshi Sayudo. Yoshi's sculpture is this massive bronze. It looks like a vine or tree branch that makes a circle. We have three galleries at the Arvada Center, 10,000 square feet. And we have filled not only these galleries, but as many nooks and crannies as that are acceptable. So you could go up to these stairs and you'll see this giant graphic of the Colorado license plate that says Art of the State. And that's where it begins. We kind of laid it out where the theater galleries are most intimate galleries. So we've put actually the smallest pieces and a lot of most the most representational and traditional works of the exhibit in the theater gallery. Mm -hmm. Predominantly, that's how it works. And then the upper gallery, you'll have kind of more stylized. And then in the main gallery, which is about 6,000 square feet, that's where you're going to see contemporary and abstracts and more of that conceptual, sometimes more challenging work. That's how we try to lay it out. We wanted to show as much of everything as we can that's going on in the state. Of course, that's very difficult with only 150 pieces, but um, we wanted to kind of do a snapshot or a small survey of what's going on. I want to talk about the type of, of pieces in this exhibit. Is it simply paintings and prints? Or what else is there? Uh, Yeah, so we have from abstract to traditional paintings, a lot of photography, prints from etchings. Um, We actually have a video game piece. We have installations, an inflatable by Nicole Banowitz. We have... um, a mix, an inflatable? Yeah, inflatable. Okay, so, wait, wait, you have to explain this. What is what is it? A mixed inflatable? Okay, so uh, Denver-based artist Nicole Banowitz created these inflatable organisms or structures in her work. So she basically has fabric and sews tubes and creates these things that she blows air into, much like you would see on the side of the road. Those guys that wave their arms, that, oh, yeah. you know, promote. Imagine something like that, but obviously a lot better and more artistic. <laughs> And they're usually made of all white. This one that is in Art of the State is actually of uh, two rhinos 
that are looking at each other. So that one's a good probably eight feet wide by six feet high by four feet deep. It is probably one of the largest sculptures we have. And this piece is called Rhinos and Sea Anemones Fighting. Then we have something very traditional from ceramics, functional ceramics. We have a, a vase by Bob Smith. So just this functional piece. There's something for everyone. And there are going to be those pieces that you don't understand. And we actually have cell phone tours with any participating artist if they chose. So you could dial next to their piece and listen to that artist speak about that piece, their practice, maybe a little background on themselves. So that kind of helps get your idea of what's going on. And earlier we heard from printmaker Mark Lunning. His piece, Activities of Entropy, is in the show. What drew you to it? Uh, Well, Mark, he's a longtime staple Colorado artist. So just even having him apply and then the jurors selecting it was, you know, wonderful. And an artist like Mark is unique in the sense of not only is he a wonderful artist himself, but he works with many wonderful artists. He's the master of what he does in the sense of a master printmaker. The idea that he's supporting Colorado artists with what he does is really important. The Best in Show Award went to artist Kevin Sloan. Describe his painting, Saint Fortitude, for us. What made this piece worthy of Best in Show? Kevin Sloan piece, you look at it, immediately you have a blue sky in the background. And you have this gray seal with this this candlestick balancing on on the seal's nose. But the seal is very well crafted, but then... It's graffitied. The seal itself, its skin is graffitied. It makes you kind of stop and wonder what is going on. And it kind of adds that other depth and dimension of of that piece. And is that why you chose it as Best in Show? Because of that so many different ways that a person could view it? Yeah, I would say that and the craft behind it. His technique is is spot on. It's almost like it's out of an Audubon Society you know, book or magazine. But then there's some really crazy stuff going on with these animal prints. His works are very wonderful and whimsical and it's adding there's a lot of narrative and content and deeper meaning rather than just a picture of a seal. I mean, it just felt right to not only myself, but the other jurors, Michael Chavez and Gwen Chanzet, to select it. Who are Gwen and Michael? Gwen is uh, Gwen Chanzet. She's the uh, modern curator at the Denver Art Museum. We tried hard to find experts of the region. And I was very happy that both Gwen and Michael Chavez is the public art manager for the city of Denver. So experts that really know the business, the arts, and have juried many, many exhibitions. And this exhibition is juried. So how does that work? Yeah. So uh, the Arvada Center, we promoted this call a year and a half ago, and we sent it out all across the state to different arts organizations and on our social media and et cetera. And we got uh, 511 artists that submitted, and it was open to any artist over 18 that resides in Colorado. And the goal, it could be any media, any style, size, etc. Now, were the submissions anonymous? Due to our expertise of Colorado art, sometimes it's challenging to set aside, oh, that's a Phil Bender, because you start to, you get to know their work and their styles and who they are. But we try to view it as the pieces themselves rather than who created them. So essentially it was anonymous, but but you got to know it's kind of a small uh, a world in the Colorado art world. Correct. Right? Yeah. This is the second art of the state show, and the Arvada Center hosted a similar exhibition in 2013. What's, what's changed since the first show? Well, I, I've been telling everyone it's really exciting seeing not only these new artists that are new to me, new to the jurors, new to the community, new to the state, but also these artists that maybe perhaps they were part of it in 2013, 
but their work has continued to evolve and grow. Yeah, and Colin, the exhibition attempts, like you said, to represent the entire state uh, really seems like an ambitious goal. (laughs) Uh, You know, geographically, how inclusive is the show? We, of course, would always love to have artists uh, as far as we can get, um, but we tried to choose the best art of the state. Mm -hmm. And so that's always the challenge between it's not the best art of, say, Pueblo, but if that Pueblo artist happens to be have one of the best pieces, then he would be he or she would be selected. And fifty four out of the hundred and twenty four artists are based in Denver. Yeah, and that kind of makes sense if you think of population. We also have some in Glenwood Springs, Steamboat, Salida, um, Manitou Springs. So kind of all over the map. It, it's just exciting to see, and I hope in twenty nineteen. Those artists that, if you're listening right now and didn't have the opportunity to apply, in 2019, we'll be doing this again. Hopefully you put your name in the bucket. And then what do you envision for Art of the State in the future? I hope it honestly just continues to grow and push. It needs to evolve and encourage artists to continue to push themselves and continue their practice. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Colin Parson is one of the jurors in selecting art pieces for the exhibition Art of the State. He's also a curator at the Arvada Center for the Arts and Humanities. Art of the State is open now through March 27. You can see photos of some of the pieces at cprnews.org. ahead, he inspired Jack Kerouac's Dean Moriarty, Neil Cassidy, and his time in Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Tomorrow, the Mercury Cafe holds the 7th annual Neil Cassidy Birthday Bash in downtown Denver. Cassidy was the basis for Jack Kerouac's prolific character Dean Moriarty in his 1957 novel On the Road. Out we jumped in the warm, mad night hearing a wild tenor man's bawling horn across the way going, and hands clapping to the beat, and folks yelling, go, go, go. And far from escorting the girls into the place, Dean Moriarty was already racing across the street with his huge bandaged thumb in the air yelling, blow, man, blow. That's Jack Kerouac reading from his novel. Cassidy wasn't a published author, but he did write long confessional letters to his friends. One of those letters, long thought to be missing, resurfaced in 2014. Cassidy wrote it to Kerouac in December 1950, and Kerouac later said it was the inspiration for on-the-road spontaneous prose style. CPR's Ryan Warner spoke to filmmaker Heather Dalton back in 2014 about her documentary on Cassidy's time in Denver. It aired on Colorado Public Television. Let's start with this letter. How important is it to the, you know, the whole story of Kerouac and Cassidy? This literally is the holy grail of beat culture. It's um, This letter has been drummed up of such mythic proportions that no one ever thought that this would be found. It was rumored to have been thrown off of a boat huh. uh, in Sausalito. And so it's major, major news sweeping the entire community. Sausalito, just outside of San Francisco. It's known as the Joan Anderson letter, some 16,000 words. Uh, Tell us just a bit more about it, why it's called the Joan Anderson letter, for instance. Well, Neil was definitely um, very infamous for his ability to charm and, and had a lot of women continually around him. There was one special woman, woman, rather, in Denver that he foresaw a wholesome 
and fulfilled life with. Unfortunately, the story unfolds that that was not to be, but it's a very long rambling letter about an evening of him trying to get back to this woman. Uh, the prose within it is is pretty incredible because, as you had mentioned, it had changed Kerouac's style. He had already written a draft of On the Road, supposedly, and after reading this letter that was sent to him, it changed the whole dynamic, and he started writing in more of the bop prose. Hmm. Yeah, he calls it, the Kerouac does, the greatest piece of writing I ever saw. And to have Jack Kerouac say that is quite high praise. How did you become, Most definitely. Yeah, how did you become interested in, in Neil Cassidy, this, this Denver car thief and uh, player? <laughs> It's kind of a strange thing because being a woman, I I had several other female friends uh, that were a little, their curiosity was a bit piqued that I was interested in a known misogynist. And um, I think growing up in Denver, uh, there was something that whispered to me that Denver had a great literary history that hadn't been celebrated as much as I thought it should be. Um, reading on the road was a rite of passage out of high school. And I loved Kerouac's words, but I became a little bit more obsessed with the character of Dean Moriarty and how he saw and revered Denver as a city. And so it just kept nagging at me that this story needed to be told about his life growing up in Denver. Uh, He was a vagrant son that grew up on Larimer and Market Streets, basically the run of the city at a small child that shouldn't be exposed to a lot of things at the time in Depression-era Denver. And so through the journey, I I learned a lot about Neil Cassidy, but also the city of Denver itself. Yeah. I mean, Cassidy was born in Salt Lake in in 1926, but he, he grew up in Denver in, gosh, extreme poverty. And his formative years were traumatic. I mean, he was he was beaten, as you explore in the film. And, you know, this we're not talking about the uh, nuclear family here. That's correct. There was a lot of... Uh a lot of people that would take advantage of a young child left to his own devices in basically what was Denver's skid row at the time. His father was an alcoholic who would work when he was sober uh, enough to uh, keep them in and out of flop houses. His mother was emotionally absent with several other children to take care of. And so Neil basically raised himself, but there was always a quest for knowledge, a quest for betterment. So he spent a lot of his time at the Denver Public Library. Uh, He wanted to advance himself. And even at a young age, I think he recognized that the written word was going to be his savior. He attended Ebert Elementary School. And Neil Cassidy wrote a book about his early life in Denver, though it was published after his death. It's called The First Third. And you you have excerpts of it in the film. Let's listen to a clip where Cassidy talks about getting up in the morning in time to get to Ebert Elementary. There happened to be no clock, so I relied on the one on the Daniels and Fisher Mammoth Tower to wake me for school. Or at least I think this is what woke me, because as it boomed 7 a.m. down to me, I always opened my eyes and from under the unwashed blankets, stuck an alert head into our room's nippy air. Fun to think that if you look at the Daniels and Fisher Tower, you can imagine Neil Cassidy getting up for school. Uh, that's read by Denver poet and musician Polly Lipman. Uh, so Cassidy ends up going to East High School, and he meets a teacher there, Justin Brierly. Uh, who is Justin Brierly? 
Justin Brierley was a great patron of the arts, an amazing teacher from all accounts to a lot of his students that I talked to. He had taken a lot of young men that he had felt were potentially at risk and and tried to help them and and put them and Neil was one of these young men including Hal Chase, Ed White who was Tim Gray in uh Jack Kerouac's On the Road who's a prominent Denver architect now. Hmm. Um and he got a lot of these young men into Columbia and that was the hope for Neil as well and so Neil had gone to New York and subsequently had met uh, Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac through his friend Hal Chase via Justin Brierley's uh, advice that they all head east and, and get educations and come back to Denver. So th- this is so interesting. This high school teacher in Denver winds up being really rather, rather pivotal in creating the the beat generation in some way? I mean, would you say that? Most definitely. Yeah. Most definitely. And Kerouac uh, refers to him fondly as Denver Doll. Uh, that was Justin Brierley. And and it was a, a he had a great impact. And, uh, and he was kind of maligned uh, during his life. Um, there were a lot of accusations that his um, advances towards the young men or his interest in the young men was not exactly pure. Uh-huh. But from all the accounts of, of a lot of the young men that he did help that I talked to, he really was truly trying to benefit all these these gentlemen. And yeah, he inadvertently put all these people together. You interviewed Neil Cassidy's wife, Carolyn, and their three children. And I think what your film does so beautifully is it really gives us a sense of Neil Cassidy beyond the Dean Moriarty character that we associate with him. You know, that, that he is, yes, he stole many cars as a young man. And, <laughs> and yes, he grew up in abject poverty. But he was, he wanted to do right. He wanted to be better. Do you think that's true? Almost oh, definitely. And that was probably the most shocking thing about going through this process and doing a lot of the research about him. Because he is so iconic. And um, I think a lot of the misconceptions about him is it's he's almost portrayed in a one-dimensional surface uh, as an American icon. But he was truly a tormented um, man that was trying to do right by his family. He really, lacking the family structure that he had as a child, it was very important to him to be a father, to be a husband. But unfortunately, there were a lot of demons that complicated the issues, and he wasn't able to fulfill his wishes. But yeah, he, he really wanted to be the stay-at-home dad and, and the loving father and husband, and, and that just didn't work out that way. How was it to get Carolyn Cassidy, his his uh, wife, to participate? That was a... I had to court Carolyn much like uh, she made Jack and Neil court her. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was a... a it was a chase. Um I, I sent a letter to her. She had issued several cease and desist letters to a lot of other documentarians who wanted to tell this story, and I sent her a very heartfelt letter. She discussed it with the family, and they came back and told me, well, we believe that you should be the one to tell the story. So I, she came out to Denver, and I was fully ready to uh, perform the interview with her. We sat down, and we rolled three hours of tape, which she refused to talk about Neil at all. <laughs> she talked about her early childhood, oh, which gosh. was fascinating in and of itself. But 
after that, she said that she was too tired to finish the interview and she had a flight to London the next day that if I wanted to finish it, I'd have to come to London. So I raised more funds, uh, went to London and had one of the best weeks of my life staying with Carolyn. And and a lot of the off-camera stories were priceless and I feel so fortunate to have spent that time with her. Did she reveal whether Neil Cassidy was actually embarrassed by the character of Dean Moriarty, the, the, the version of himself in On the Road? Oh, most definitely. She said it really hurt him, um, that he had a lot of struggles trying to live down who Dean Mor- Moriarty was, and that he had even acknowledged by the time that he was with Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters that he recognized he was a dancing bear just there for others' amusements. Huh. I want to talk a little bit about the the places in Denver that appear in this film and that were so critical to Neil Cassidy's growing up. You know, I I didn't know that he worked at the Gates Rubber Plant, uh, Mm -hmm. much of which has been turned into apartments and lofts now. But it's it's really fun to see that place and uh, the federal courthouse downtown as spots that, you know, Cassidy talked about uh, as part of his childhood. And that was one of the driving forces behind the documentary, because as we know, we've tried to do a really great job of blending our history with modern development in our city. But a lot of these things are being uh, erased and removed from our, our cultural past. And so he had a great reverence for the architecture, and he would write at great length about how he loved that Denver alleyways were the whitest in the United States and the court buildings with all the columns. He had kind of a, a savant understanding of architecture. And um, there's My Brother's Bar, of course, mentioned. There's still a lot of places that the ghosts of Jack and Neil exist. Welton Street along that corridor with the Rossonian. Um, so much great jazz to come out of that. And, and it's it's really kind of neat to see it blended with what's happening uh, in the modern day with a, a lot of the renaissance in Denver now. Filmmaker Heather Dalton speaking about her documentary, Neil Cassidy, The Denver Years. She spoke to Ryan Warner in 2014. The seventh annual Neil Cassidy Birthday Bash will happen at the Mercury Cafe in Denver tomorrow. A correction now. In Wednesday's show, Andrew Dukakis talked with CPR's Jenny Brundine about school safety lessons for Colorado schools. During the discussion, Sarah Goodrum was incorrectly identified as a CU Boulder professor. She's actually a professor with the University of Northern Colorado. And that's our show for this Friday. But before we go, let's listen to a band you can hear now on CPR's Open Air 102.3 FM. Slim Cessna's Auto Club, the Denver alt-country band that formed in 1992, are known for their raucous and movie-like live shows. Open Air host Aaron Loki Johnson says attending an auto club show is, get this, like finding yourself in a gospel tent revival besieged by punks. Expect speaking in tongues and a mosh pit. Here they are with the song Second Commandment, which was recently recorded in the CPR Performance Studio. She met a man today by the look upon his face. She scared him half to death. I thought the sound a bit strange. She turned and fled for holes gathered her pack bags. Said she must have been. Father, remember 
That's Second Commandment performed in the CPR Performance Studio by Slim Cessna's Auto Club. And one more note ahead of Valentine's Day, we're looking at love letters or notes or maybe a text message or email. Would you share what has made your heart swoon? Send us an email at news.cpr.org. Thanks to our audio engineer, Matt Hers. Our director today was Michael DeYoana. Our producers were Nell London and Corey Jones. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend. <laughs>